In 605 BC, after years of uh, political missteps uh, and moral missteps by Judah's kings, um, Jehoiakim uh, II uh, illogically withheld tribute money to the, the mighty Babylonians. Uh, he was their vassal. They, he basically paid them for protection. That was the wrong move to make. Uh, and in 605 BC, the Babylonians uh, taught him a lesson by moving their forces uh, into uh, Judah proper, and uh, they basically took control of the fortress of Jerusalem. Uh, at that time, uh, we know from Daniel chapter... I'm going to get to First John in just a minute, in case you're wondering. Um, uh, from what we learn in uh, Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, at that time, uh, there was three de deportations. That was the first one. Uh, they took the cream of the crop of the young men from the country, the, the brightest uh, intelligentsia of the nation of Israel. That's when they, they nabbed Daniel. And they took Daniel as a teenager, uh, 600 miles away from his family, uh, as a captive uh, to groom him to be a Babylonian. Uh, and to read the book of Daniel, which we studied it several years ago in detail, uh, is to see a young man, uh, a teenager, uh, stand up against the mighty Babylonian, godless, polytheistic nation, um, and stand there for God. Boy, we need young people like this. Uh, he was not afraid. So from the very get-go, we know they wanted him to you know, eat the food offered to their, their idols, the meat and everything, and he said, nope, not doing that. I'll give you a 10-day test, and my, my guys will eat vegetables, and you can eat all that Babylonian meat you want to. So at the end, the end of the days, you know what happened. The, the Jewish young man looked more fit than the other man. Uh, when later, when he was uh, given by God the ability to understand uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's uh, dream of the giant image, uh, he with, it didn't even flinch in explaining to the king that this giant image represented him as the head and all successive empires that would come after him, and he let him know that your kingdom is going to be replaced. He's the mightiest emperor on the planet, and this young teenager had no problem telling the king, God's going to replace you. And oh, by the way, if you keep reading the book, chapter 2, verses 42 and following, he tells him the Messiah is going to come one day and destroy all earthly empires to erect his king kingdom. Um, Belshazzar, when he became the king, he's the one that had the huge drunken party, uh, thought their fortress was invincible, uh, and uh, the hand appears on the wall and writes, many, many, tekel uparsen, you know, your country's been found found wanting, and it's over for you. Uh, they, they drag old man, you know, Daniel in now, uh, later in life, and say, uh, you're great at interpreting divine things. Could you, what does that mean on the wall, this hand wrote? Uh, and he, again, uh, was extremely courageous. He told them, uh, King Belshazzar, uh, your kingdom's over with. God is going to destroy it. And, and the Medes and Persians did it that night by blocking up uh, the river that fed through the city, sending their troops under the protective gates, and they destroyed them while they were all drunk. No one was paying attention. When you look at Daniel, the whole book, it's an amazing book to study. It's a, it's a study of uh, courage. Whether he was 18 years old or 80 years old, he works in the political system representing God. When they tell him you can't pray, what did he do? Prayed anyway. How did he pray? Did he find a closet? No. He went out in a balcony, threw open the doors, and let everybody see him pray. So I would say that what's needed uh, in our world today is a little bit of that, Daniel, godly man in a godless environment. They saw his skills and abilities and they plugged him in and used him and he was not afraid to stand for God and truth. Now fast forward uh, from uh, our, you know, the, uh, Daniel's day, hundreds of years forward to John, 
who's also a, a, a young man that was brought into the fold of Jesus uh, as a teenager, basically. And he does all of his ministry with Christ. And then later in his life, uh, uh, he's, he's managing seven churches in Asia Minor. It's a godless environment, much like the Babylonian environment. There's Gnostic teachers have infiltrated the churches he pastored. They've caused all kinds of angst among the people, teaching them false doctrine about Jesus, who he is, false doctrine about sin. Uh, and old man John is like Daniel. He, as a pastor, says, uh, on my watch, uh, I'm not standing for that which is falsity. And he counsels his churches away from what the false teachers were teaching, because they'd split many of the churches, caused great mayhem. He's courageous. Uh, fast forward 2,000 years. Um, that was Daniel. That was John. Uh, stick your name in there. Now there's, what's your name? Oh, I know my name. Yeah. So, stick your name in there. It's, it's your turn. So if you walk out here wondering, like, what am I supposed to do after that sermon? God wants you to stand in the gap, no matter what your age is, whether you're 18 or you're 80, and represent him well in your life, how you live, and the things that you speak, that is truth, because that's what the culture needs. And John's talking about this as uh, we've been studying in 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 through 419. That whole section is a big section, answers one basic uh, preaching principle. The question is, what does bold belief look like in trying times? So Daniel had trying times, John had trying times, you and I have trying times. What does God want from us? Well, to do the things that are listed here. So in his old age, in his 90s, he's writing to these churches telling them, let me as your pastor counsel you how to live in a courageous way to bring those who don't know Christ to Christ and to strengthen the church. And so uh, we'll review because uh, it's been two weeks. You might have forgotten what the other points were. So let's go over them quickly. Uh, he's covered several things here. He's, and he's probably just talking off the top of his head as these things come to his mind. So bold belief strives for consistent obedience. Why? Because the, the loss, that's what they need to see that you're consistent. Because if you're not consistent, they can smell hypocrisy a mile away. Uh, bold belief and, and the consistent obedience is also done uh, in light of the fact you're going to stand before God's throne one day and give account. That's what he talks about. So are you ready for the day, the day you stand and give account? How well did you live the Christian life? Number two, bold belief lives in light of God's character, Christ's character. So his character should be your character. So that's why you read the Gospels and study Jesus, not to just to go, uh, well, I know where he went, you know, when he was in Capernaum, this is what he did. No, you need, what, what was he like? That's what I need to be like. Um, and again, what does your culture need? They need to see people that, that have the, well, the, the character of Christ. They need to see Christ. Three, bold belief lives in light of who you are as a Christian, uh, who is God ca has called you to be. And then it, you live in light of who you will be when you see Christ face to face. So you want to live in such a way that you give the people around you a taste of heaven, that they can see there's something unusual about that person. What is it? Uh, and then you uh, can share with them the gospel of Christ. Moving on, because there's more in this uh, great section. Uh, today we want to look at a, a, another point, uh, item number five. Bo Belief understands the nature of sin. Notice what he says. Uh, and I'm going to just tell you right up front, this is one of those passages I told my wife and I told Pastor Michael earlier in the week, when you preach expositionally, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, you can't skip stuff. Because if I skip something, do you think this church would let me know? Hey, uh, what about, uh, yeah. So, I, you know, this is one of those passages, as you're going to see as we get to verse 6 and 9, it's complicated. And I'll, I'll try to unweave it for you. It's theologically complicated. So uh, some of this stuff is not complicated. It's easy to wrap your mind around. Others are a little more lofty, so I'm going to give it my best shot. So... Grace and mercy are two great things from a church, all right? 
So, bold belief understands the nature of sin. Everyone who practices sin also practices what? Lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. What do you see in our culture? <laughs> lawlessness. I, mean, I was raised in a law enforcement family. I was the chaplain for 1,300 uh, uh, sheriff's officers. I get the concept of law. When your father comes home every night with a weapon and a uniform, you get the concept. Um, and so he says, everyone who practices. So the word there in Greek is pan. Pan means all. Uh, if you look at verse 3, which we talked about two weeks ago, verse 3 uses the word pan as well. Sometimes translated all, sometimes translated everyone. What does that mean? You don't have to have a PhD in hermeneutics to get this one. This is a, this is a softball question. It means, well, all. Like uh, unbelievers? Hmm? Believers? Yeah, both, all. So any, any Christian, because can a Christian do that which is lawless? Yeah. Uh, did, this is a confessional booth. Did you do any lawless things this week? Mm-hmm. Did you try not to? Excellent. Make this next week a totally week where you're law-abiding, okay? Let's, moving back to the scripture, too convicting. So a Christian can live lawlessly, and a non-Christian, well, they, they really do. Because they are a law unto them, themselves. So in the context, he is talking about believers primarily. Secondarily, about non-Christians. But primarily to Christians, because he's talking to these churches. So in verse 3, he's talking to Christians. So in verse 4, who's he probably talking to when he uses the word pan? Christians. So he's talking to Christians who've chosen to, because of the influence of Gnosticism, where well, what you do with your outer body doesn't matter. You know, if you want to be sinful, it doesn't matter because what matters is what, what you feel and think on the inside. So enjoy sin on the outside. God only deals with the inside. That's the Gnostic teaching. So a lot of people in churches bought into this. So John is saying, if you've drank that Kool-Aid and it has affected you, negatively so, listen to me. He says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. So let's look at the word lawlessness. It's, it's a combination of two words in Greek. If you take the first word of the Greek alphabet, uh, uh, alpha, and you wed it to a word, whatever the word is, it negates it. It's called an alpha privative. So here you have the word namas, law, and you put alpha in front of it, and guess what? Well, namas, law, is alpha privative, anamas means no law. So where there was law, there is no law. So he says when you do sin, uh, it is absolutely the antithesis of God's law. I mean, what God says is law. Uh, remember uh, in the Garden of Eden, uh, Satan is very crafty, comes to Eve. They've already been told by God, enjoy all the trees of the garden. Well, except for one, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of that tree. The day that you eat of it, you die spiritually and physically. Enjoy the rest of the garden. What, did, what does Satan do? He comes along, he just asks an innocent question. I like it in the King James Version. Hath God said that you can't have all? See, a little innocent question. And Satan still does this today. He's not going to come right out and just totally na nail you with something outlandish. Has, has, has God said it's okay for you to do that or not do that? It's a little innocent question. And so she listened to the devil, and she realized, gosh, God is so restrictive. All these trees, and he's, there's one we can't eat of? I think I better do it. God's too restrictive. And oh, by the way, that I, if I do it, then I'm going to be like God and know everything. And so just an innocent question. And the minute she did that, that was lawless behavior. If God says, don't eat of that tree, don't eat of that tree. Um, then he says, uh, also, so that was her lawless deed. He also says, um, 
All sin is lawlessness. So the word sin, because there's many different Greek words for sin, they're very precise. This is hamartia. We studied this before, in case you don't remember. Hamartia is a, is a military term in, in Greek. Uh, it denotes uh, firing on an archery range, hitting a target. The, the soldier who fires and doesn't hit the target committed hamartia. He, he missed the mark, because that's the goal, is to hit the target. So sin is a missing of the mark of what God says is law. So whatever God says, and by the way, God's moral law never changes. It's always sin. Now, our culture bobs and weaves on what is sin and not sin and redefines it all the time, rationalize it. But, but sin is a missing of the mark of what God says is absolutely true in moral law. Um, so if that is what sin is. When you sin, you hear, God said this. I heard this in the sermon. I ain't doing that. And when you don't do that, the, then you've just committed lawlessness lawlessness. Um, years ago, Liz and I bought a house that backed up to a huge lot that the lot had been, in, I mean, vacant for years. It was surrounded by some apartments uh, and some homes, but it had sat idle for years. I'd seen it that way since the 60s when I was a kid. But we bought a house uh, on the backside of that, and uh, I thought it was going to be quiet, but they eventually built a Home Depot <laughs> behind my home. Ruined my life in one way, blessed it in another, because... <laughs> Because they were really noisy, but on Friday nights, I would look at Liz and I would say, hey, uh, you want to walk around the corner to the <laughs> day night at the tool corral? That, that didn't go well. But uh, anyway, so back to my sermon. So one day, this lot that had been vacant for years uh, and clean, there's a couple weeds here and there, not bad. Somebody put a four by four post in the ground, eight footer, uh, sunk it in the ground right behind our house, and they stuck a sign on it about this big, and it said, no dumping to a lot that was clear. Guess what? Some yo-yo, <laughs> sinful person, loaded their truck up with garbage, drove it to the base of that sign, and dumped it there. And so I came out of my complex one day, and I saw the no dumping sign with a big pile of trash you know, covering it. And I'm like, this is an illustration of sin, isn't it? Because the sign said, thou shalt not dump. <laughs> Boom. And what did this guy say? Watch me put all my trash right there. there. There it was. Was that lawless behavior? Yeah. Haven't you ever done that? God says, don't do that. And you did that. Can a Christian do that? Mm-hmm. You just confessed a few minutes ago that you did it. So now don't lie. That's another sin. All right. So, so what does all this got to do with you as a Christian? Um, well, if you want to be a, a confident on the day that you stand before Christ and give account of your life and how well you ran the race, for Christ, and not ashamed when you see him because your life is pretty much in order with his. Um, and think about yourself and ask yourself this one question. What lawless thing have I been doing that I need to quit doing? Okay, I'm going to mess with you for just a minute. I had to mess with me earlier in the week. What lawless thing are you doing that you need to quit doing? Now, you may be the only person who knows about your lawless deed, but what is it? Because I can tell you right now, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is in overdrive right now. He's on a loudspeaker. Hello, been telling you. Now he's telling you, right? And what's he telling you? Well, you know exactly what the lawless deed is. And if you know what it is, then what should you do? Stop that. Stop that. Um, do you speak truth or are you deceptive? You know, because Christians can be deceptive. Um, do you really love others? I mean, I don't care who they are. Do you really love them? Or are there certain just kinds of people you just don't like? Um, when you're wrong, do you really turn the other cheek or do you figure out ways to get back at other person 
you know, to kind of level the playing field. Um, do you love your husband or wife regardless of what they are doing? I mean, really? I mean, the Lord calls us to love. Do you really love regardless? Um, if you're a single person, uh, you sexually pure? Are you? Or are you doing things that you know you shouldn't be doing and rationalizing your behavior? Because he says here, everyone, speaking to the Christians foremost, who practices sin, you're living lawlessly. Don't do that. Why? Because you won't have an impact on the culture if they watch you do that. So what are you doing that's lawless? See, the revisionists in their church said, outer body doesn't matter. Live with no law. Enjoy your life. And what did John say? No, what matters is that your spiritual man matches the outer man and vice versa. So what is your assignment? In case you're wondering what the applicational point is, I'm going to make sure you understand it. When you leave today, you have one question between you and God. What lawless thing am I doing that I might not even see I'm doing? And I confess that. Number two, bold belief understands sin's solution. Verse five, and he says, and you know that he has appeared, Jesus, in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. This is an amazing section, of a little tiny little verse, but loaded with powerful truth. Uh, Jesus appeared. Why? See that in order that? That's a purpose clause. It's either purpose or result in Greek. Either way, it works. But Jesus came to the earth. Why? Well, so that he can take away your sins. Because there's no one else on the planet that can take away your sins. This is why Christianity is narrow. Because he is the way to the Father. He's the only way. Uh, because he's the only one who could provide the means by where you, by you as a sinner could have your sin taken away. Because sin is the problem. So Jesus became the perfect sacrifice uh, to bear your sin, my sin on the cross. So that when you come to him in faith... He takes your sin and he like wipes the ledger clean and, and, and gives you a new life. But he could do that because he was sinless. Only a sinless being could take away sin. Uh, no man could accomplish this. Why? Because we all sin. You just admitted it a few minutes ago. You can't even get through a week without doing something lawless. Correct? Now you're all quiet. Yeah. So was, was Jesus perfect? Because think of it this way. A sin against an absolutely perfect God can only be met with the provision of an absolutely perfect being, the God-man, Jesus. That was Jesus. He was absolutely perfect. He was without sin. Uh, the devil tempted him in the Judean wilderness. I've been out there. There's nothing out there. I mean, there's no trees. There's rocks. There's sand. And it's hot. And he was out there for 40 days, tempted by the devil. And then every time the devil tempted him, he just quoted scripture and put the devil down, and he did not give in to temptation. He, he didn't sin. Uh, when the Jews opposed him in John chapter 8, um, he turned to them and he looked to them and he asked them this question, which of you convicts me of sin? All of a sudden it was crickets. Because, hey, have you ever seen him sin? Mm -mm. Yeah, do you, have you seen him? Mm -mm. No one said anything. Why? Because they hadn't seen him sin. Um, earlier in, in John uh, chapter 8, verse 12, uh, he claims to the Jews that he is the light of the world. That is some kind of claim. He didn't say a light. He says the light. What light is he talking about? He's the spiritual light of all light. He is the moral light of all moral lights. You can't get more perfect than him. He's perfection when it comes to those things. To make the claim means he must have been living that. Because they could have said, well, you, you're claiming to be all spiritual moral light, but hey, we say huge issues with your life. No, they didn't, re, they didn't attack him on that because he was sinless. Um, concerning his relationship with the Father, he says over and over in the book of John, uh, I always do what's pleasing to him. Always. 
Can any of you say, I always do what God wants me to do? Uh-uh. You're going to have a hard time making it to noon. But you can try. But Jesus said, no, I always do what my Father wants me to do because I can defeat sin. Uh, Paul one time said in 2 Corinthians 5.2, he, the Father, made him who knew no sin uh, to be sin on our behalf that we, this is the awesome part, might become the righteousness of God in him. That's salvation. But prior to salvation, I have unrighteousness. How do I get righteous? Well, I come to Jesus, who knew no sin, was made sin for me and for you. Uh, and when I come to him, he redeems me. He, as John says, he takes away your sin. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verse 7 says this about Jesus. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is just a fancy word uh, to say, he covered your sins so the anger of God is removed against your sin. For since he himself was tempted in which he was suffered, he's able to come to aid to those who are tempted. Jesus understands your temptations. He understands how, how difficult they are. I mean, he had all of them leveled against him, and he came through victorious and sinless so he could go to the cross to provide propitiation for your sin, coverage. I don't know, I have to ask you, are you covered? Is your sin taken away? There's only two kinds of people in the room right now. Those whose sins have been taken away by Jesus and those who still hold on to their sins. Why in the world would you want to do that? John says, he appeared in order to take away our sins and in him there is no sin. Applicational point for a Christian is clear based on the passage of what he's talking about. Since Jesus dealt with sin on the cross to redeem you, and he did redeem you because a lot of you just said that your sin has been taken away. Well, what's that mean to you pragmatically? That means because he did this un um, unbelievable thing for you on the cross, then go live for him. Do you hear me? Why would you not want to live for him? Why? Because you're wanting to, like I, when I played the piano the other day and we sang that song, Pour My Love On You, that's it. Because you did this for me my whole life, I'm going to pour my love on you, Christ. What does your culture need? People that see that. If you're not a Christian uh, and you have still got your sin, it's all yours, uh, your good works won't save you. Uh, saying the right prayers won't save you. The fact that you had Christian parents won't save you. The fact that your grandma took you to Sunday school won't save you. What saves you? Jesus saves you. And you must come to him in faith and say, Lord, save me. And he will. Romans 10, pretty simple, what Paul says here. If you're not a Christian, uh, this is for you. It's conditional because you have a self-will. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, that's the cause. What's the effect? You, you'll be saved. You will be saved. Uh, he goes on to add, for uh, with the heart man believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. Notice how this works. You confess Christ as Lord of your life. He saves you at that moment and takes your sin away and makes you positionally holy. You have his righteousness. It's why you can walk into heaven. Who or what is keeping you from embracing that? Who? I mean, I've heard everything under the sun. If I did this, what would my husband say? He's an atheist. I've heard that argument. You know, well, you just get right with God first and let God deal with your husband. You know, um, if you're a Christian, uh, you should be focusing on this on a daily basis. Lord, you have done so much to redeem me. Might I live a redeemed life to those people around me? Because that redeems culture. 
And then lastly are those verses I said I wish I could skip because they're complicated. But I'm not chicken, theologically speaking. And I'm competitive, so we're going to dive in. We got one minute. <laughs> we'll, we'll save it for next week. No. Notice what he says here. Bold belief understands the power of intimacy, because that's what he's been talking about in the book. Abide in Jesus. Abide in Jesus. Don't sin, because your sin messes up that, that unity. And if you're married or dating, you understand intimacy, right? You have to maintain it. You have to work at it. It just doesn't happen. I mean, when I got married to Liz 42 years ago, I'm thinking, well, this is going to be easy. Marrying somebody I love, dream of my life, it's not going to be a problem. Hello. There, <laughs> there's challenges. Uh, you got to work on intimacy. So notice what he says here. We're going to read two verses that are problematic. No one who abides in him, speaking to Christians, sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Verse 9 it says this. If we could, there. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. This is problematic, isn't it? Do you see that as problematic? What's the problem with it? Well, they're highly theologically complex. Why? Because it appears to tell us, well, there's a contradiction. Because prior in the book, he's telling us, you do sin. He, he says that all over the place. And now all of a sudden, is he having a senior moment? He just forgot what he's been talking about, that Christians can sin. And when you confess your sin, he, he cleanses you of your sin and gets you back in that intimate walk. Did he forget that? What in the world is he talking about? Well, let's dive into what he's talking about. First um, John chapter 1, verse 9. Can a Christian sin? Yes. Can a Christian sin the same kind of sin more than one time? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can they do it 10 times? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we see it. You see it in your own life. But notice what he says in verse 9. If we, can, as Christians, confess our sins, what does God do? He's faithful. And he's righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we, as a Christian, have not sinned, eh, you just told God you're a liar. And his word is not in us. So can Christians sin? Yeah, absolutely. What should you do when you sin? Well, you should confess. And then he cleanses you. John uh, chapter 2, verse 1, notice what he says. My little children, I'm writing these things to you. Why? So that you don't sin. And if anyone does sin as a Christian, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So he just said in verse 6 and 9, well, the Christian doesn't practice sin. They don't sin. Huh? What are you talking about? You just said that if we sin, I have a defense attorney in heaven. His name is Jesus. So what are you talking about, John? First uh, John chapter 2, verse 11, notice what he says. But the one who hates his brother, hates as a, well, past, present, future. I know it's early for grammar. It's present tense. But the one, Christian, who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So if you're a Christian and you choose, I just don't like her. She's done things to me, to my children, whatever. I don't like her. Uh, you hate that person. Uh, if that's what you've chosen to do, you're walking in darkness. He, and he says, if you do that as a lifestyle, uh, you, you know, you're not going to see where God wants you to be walking because you can sin like that as a Christian. Um, that's the, 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 the participle hates is a present tense participle, meaning it's ongoing activity. Um, verse 7, notice what he says. Little children, this is chapter 3, getting ahead of ourselves. Let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Notice what he just said to little children, Christians. Let no one deceive you. I've told you this before. I'll tell you it again. It's two ways to say no in Greek. One is don't ever think of it. And the other one is stop doing it. 
When you have a negative with a present tense imperative, it means stop doing what you're perpetually doing. Guess which one is used here? He's telling them, Christians, if any of these false teachers have, have warped your thinking and deceived you, you, you need to get away from them. So it is possible for that to happen to a Christian. He just said it is. So is it possible for a Christian to get into perpetual sin? Mm-hmm. Well, then what does he mean over here in verse 6 when he says, no one who abides in him sins? What, is, what does that mean? Uh, what I think it means is this. Um, Notice what 1 John uh, chapter 9 states. If we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and righteous to do what? Forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. See, here's what I think John's getting at. Because he just he spent the rest of the book telling us, your sin is impacting your intimacy with Jesus. Confess and get back to an intimate walk with Christ. What I think he's saying here, he's not telling you that your life, Christians' lives are, are uh, lives just full of... Uh, total obedience to Christ or thereabouts close to it. No, he's telling you, you can sin. When you do get into a, a sin, uh, remember that he will forgive you of the sin you confess. And then notice the last clause. When he forgives you of the sin that you confess, he gives you something extra. What's the extra? <laughs> well, he cleanses you from all the other stuff that you're not even paying attention to. Don't you think that you have one or two blind spots? Your wife thinks you do. Your boyfriend, your girlfriend, just ask him. What are my blind spots? Share with me, my children, at the lunch table today. Yeah, really, Dad, we can, we can say? Yeah, because you probably have them. And so when you confess the sin that, that you know is tripping you up, Jesus then comes along and says, yeah, there's, there's a few more over here, and I'm going to cover all that other unrighteousness and keep you in an intimate walk. This is why you should be confessional. So he's not talking about a Christian who, who got saved, and it's a, it's a linear, straight walk up to Jesus and to glory because your life is just totally holy all the time. No, because you have many ups and downs as you look at your life, right? I do. If you're not a Christian, what should you do? Well, if you're not a Christian, you should realize that today's the day to confess Christ. Because Christian confession keeps intimacy going. Point in time confession of a lost person introduces you into the family of God. And you're never expelled. Now, I want to look at verse 9 before we close, because it's problematic too. He says, no one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born a gun. That's a tough verse. What is he talking about? No one born of God practices sin. So if you're a Christian sitting here today, he, he, it sounds like he's telling you, you don't, you don't do sin. Do you? Remember a few minutes ago when we talked about lawlessness and you all confessed? Oh, yeah, I had my moment this week. Okay, so that means you're not a Christian. No, no. Uh, that means you, you, you had a problem with something. That's, that, that's like tripping you up. So when he says, no one who is born of God uh, practices sins because his seed abides in him, here's what I think he's saying in this cryptic saying. I think what he's saying, and, and by the way, this verse is mistranslated by the King James, which is the top one, or the NAS and the King James, and the NIV in the bottom where it says, uh, no one who is born of God will continue in sin. I have problems with that because what, what is habitual sin? One sin? Five sins? Ten sins? Well, it's, it's uh, 350 sins. I mean, what is it exactly? I mean, I'm serious. I mean, like, what is it exactly? Because we all understand it's easy to get lost in some kind of sin. Does that mean I'm not saved? No, it means that you're disobedient and you need to confess and get back with God. When he's talking about no one who's born of God practices sin, he's talking about being born again. What happened when you got born again? The old me is forgiven and God gives me a clean new me. Remember? That's the new you, the saved you, the positional righteous you. 
Where'd you get the righteousness? From Jesus. So you can look at it this way. Your spiritual man is holy. Why? 1 Corinthians 1.30. In Christ, you have his holiness. In that sense, you don't sin. You follow me? Because that positional you is positional Jesus' righteousness. The problem is your practice. Follow? Bifurcate the two. Positionally, holy. Practice, another issue. What does the world need? It needs to see in your life and in my life a matching between the two. That your holiness that's here is matched more often than not in your life by your behavior. I mean, how you act, how you speak, how you think, how you respond, how you love your wife, how you treat your kids. I mean, everything. There's a, there's a matching between the two. He's talking about, I think, the difference between positional holiness and practical holiness. God's seed abides in you. That's why you can stand before uh, Peter when he says, why should you come in the gate of heaven? Well, I, I got the seed of Jesus. I'm saved. And that's how you get in. The problem is when you don't live in light of who you are. And sometimes your kids do that, don't they? What do you want your children to do but to reflect the family? But sometimes they don't. And it's kind of like what we do as Christians. Sometimes we don't reflect the heavenly family. I don't know, when I look around at my old world, uh, we have a heavy responsibility to be Daniel and John to our culture. What is that? It's the tall order to let them see Jesus. And the other thing is, if you're not a Christian, well, today's the day for you to see Jesus as your Savior. Let me pray for you. God, uh, thank you for the scriptures. Uh, There's a shallow end. There's definitely a deep end. Uh, Thank you for both ends of the theological pool. They stretch us. Uh, But at the end of the day, might our lives uh, not get embroiled in all the intricacies of these things, but may we be seen as obedient to you, following your laws, mirroring your character to those about us. And we are always careful to pray for those that we know are either in the building or online who don't know you. Uh, Give them that day, uh, this day, the the will and the, the joy of coming to know you as Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.